him down. He ended up in hospital. She went ahead and voted. And they eventually got a divorce. Quite the overreaction, huh? Now, if you felt as we read Numbers 20, or maybe you did it in community groups this week, that maybe the Lord God overreacted a little bit. You wouldn't be the only one. I mean, is that how you felt as you read this? I mean, what did Moses do that was so bad as to disqualify him? Remember who Moses is, a man of God, the prophet, the leader, the friend of God. Disqualify him from entering into the promised land. What did he do? I mean, did God majorly overreact? Now, today we're going to look at this in a little bit more detail. Now, just a little bit of hint. When you come to parts of the Bible that you struggle or wrestle with or puzzling parts of the Bible, it's always worth going a little bit deeper, look a little bit closer. Because those questions are good. And when you look closer with those objections and questions, that's often when you mine gold. And that's what we're going to do. See, on the surface, God does seem like he overreacted. But I reckon if we look closer and, and discover a little bit deeper, that we'll actually see that it wasn't an overreaction. Now, if that's the case, then maybe if God didn't overreact, maybe, just maybe, there is some aspect of God that we didn't see clearly before, that hopefully at the end we will see clearly. Maybe it's something that Moses didn't even see clearly about God and that he needed to realize. And I'll just give you a preview where we're going to end up is that's exactly what happens. This aspect of God that we will discover at the end of this chapter is something that we actually today as God's people get wrong a lot. So it's going to be really important that we keep digging and we keep asking. So I'm going to pray and ask, us to, uh, ask God to help us and help me, especially with my fluey snottiness, to get through today and uh, get as much out of this chapter as we can. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that even uh, as I struggle to speak, that you would be speaking through me and my sickness and weakness, that people might be hearing you and be changed by you. Do your work, Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. If you haven't been with us, uh, we've been going through the book of Numbers, and it's a great idea to catch up, especially with the first sermon. Um, it's all online. But Numbers is really the story uh, from the end of the book of Exodus as God's people come out of slavery in Egypt, and they're journeying from where God gave them the law and officially made them His people at Mount Sinai, journeying from Sinai, which is at the end of Exodus, to Canaan, which is the land that God promised them. Now, we saw a couple of weeks ago that the turning point to the whole book was back in chapters num Numbers chapters 13 and 14. Because there, as they got right to the border of the promised land we're about to enter, we saw they fail dismally, big time. They fail to trust God. And the punishment that God had for them was that 40 years they would be wandering in the desert. They wouldn't go in because they failed to trust God to get them in. So they'd be wandering in the desert until that whole first generation that came out of Egypt all died. Bar two people. Right? 40 years would pass before they had another shot at it. Now Numbers chapter 20 verse 1, it tells us it's the first month. It's a bit vague, first month of what? But actually what it is is the first month of the new generation. 40 years has passed, right? We fast forwarded 40 years pretty quickly between last chapter and this chapter. 40 years has passed and they are at the place 
which is called Kadesh, which we know is at the edge of the promised land. So they're back where they were 40 years ago, back where they went in to scout the land, back where they failed the first time, but now the new generation is here and it's 40 years later. Now this chapter is a bit like the um, Avengers Infinity War chapter of Numbers because it starts sad, it ends sad, and it's sad in the middle and pretty much everyone dies. So the chapter, oh sorry, did I just give it away? You knew that everyone's going to die. Well, actually half. But anyway, let's not go there. Um, the chapter begins with Miriam's death. Miriam is Moses' sister and the most prominent female leader. It's going to end with Aaron's death, Moses' brother and the great high priest. And here in the middle, Moses will be doomed not to enter the land. It pretty much is the Infinity War chapter, isn't it? Pretty depressing. Everyone, you see, of the Exodus generation, minus two people, Joshua and Caleb, they will all die, as God said. And here's the sad thing, including these three leaders. So let's go. If you want to follow on your outlines, I've got three points. I'm up to point one. Um, now, we read earlier this chapter, Kerry read for us, it appears to be one of many, 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 many grumbling stories in the desert because we've had so many in numbers, right? Now, you remember uh, in the second sermon of the series, we started with chapter 11. If you have a quick flipper, look at chapter 11. Uh, chapter 11, verses 1 to 3, is the, ch- is, the, is the pattern of the grumbling. Remember the first sermon of Numbers? Everything is good in chapters 1 to 10. First bad turning point, chapter 11. And the first three verses really sets the pattern there. We won't read it, but if you scan it, you'll see that what's going to happen is Israel will complain or grumble. And then God will get angry and then punish them. And then Moses will s- intercede, speak on their behalf. And then God will turn back the punishment and then the place will get a name, okay, that they grumbled at. That's basically the pattern of the grumbling. And we've seen that pattern repeated again and again. So in chapter 11, they grumbled, grumbled about manna. In uh, chapter 13 and 14, the big chapters, they grumbled about going into the land. Uh, last week with Dom, you heard, they grumbled about the priests and the leaders, all right? And now they're grumbling about what? Water. They haven't got water. And as we read earlier, this grumbling leads to near mutiny, and like in chapter 16, Moses and Aaron, at the, at, the, at the report of the mutiny, well, they come into God's physical presence. They go to the tent of meeting where God chose to dwell among the camp, and they're face down, right? They're expecting something big's going to happen, and then God responds. And his response is, he gives Moses instructions about how to perform a water miracle, And Moses was to take the staff, which was the staff he used to perform miracles in Egypt. He was to go before the people. He was to speak to the rock, and the water would miraculously come out. That's what God tells Moses to do. And we read that Moses begins to do that, but instead of following God's instructions to speak to the rock, well, he instead loses his temper, it sounds like. He speaks to the people instead, and then he strikes the rock, twice with the staff. Now, the water still comes out miraculously, but that's where God is unhappy. And the consequence at the end of the chapter is that Moses comes under judgment and is barred from entering the land himself. Okay. So once again, we've got to ask the question. Yes, what he did wasn't following God's instructions. It was bad. But did God overreact? Don't you feel sorry for Moses? You might be feeling even more sorry for Moses when I show you what happened 40 years ago in Exodus. Let me read it out. Just follow. It's a bit of a long passage, but it's really worth reading because it's the background to this. 
The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Go out in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Okay, that's interesting, isn't it? In fact, it's so similar that some scholars think that it's actually the same incident. But it's not, because it's a different time, a different location, uh, even though one of the places get the same name, Meribah, still different. Seems like there were two Meribahs. And Exodus 17 happens near Mount Sinai. He actually strikes the rock at Horeb, which is the mountain. Numbers 20, we know, is nowhere near that. It's at the edge of the promised land at Kadesh. Also, the details are different. But the reason why I want to show you is because on the surface... Exodus 17 might make you feel even more sorry for Moses, right? Because look what he was told to do to the rock in Exodus 17. He was told to strike the rock. I mean, so yeah, maybe in Numbers 20, he lost his temper and didn't follow God's exact instructions, but striking the rock had precedence, didn't it? Yeah, maybe he was like, it was muscle memory, just automatically did it. Why did God judge him so harshly because of it? They're good questions, aren't they? Now, maybe it is a lesson about God's holiness, that God in His holiness doesn't tolerate sin. But God seems to tolerate the people's complaints and their grumbling. He he doesn't judge them. I mean, arguably, that was the biggest sin, right? Or maybe this is a a lesson about leaders and God expecting more from His leaders. The more you're given, the more is expected. Moses was closest to God, given most responsibility. God revealed most to Moses, and maybe that's why he had the harsher punishment. Now, certainly that's a theme in the Bible. The New Testament book of James said that leaders or teachers will be judged more strictly. But is that all there is to it? We're going to go to point number two now, because we're going to look carefully at the details and see if we can answer the question, did God overreact? Now, the key to Moses doing the wrong thing is in verse 12. So back to Numbers 20, look at verse 12. God says, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. You got the two key things that Moses did wrong. It was firstly a heart thing, and then secondly, a holiness thing, okay? Firstly, he lacked trust. He didn't trust. That's a heart problem. He didn't trust in God enough to then honor God's holiness. That's the second thing, God's holiness, heart and holiness, or trust and holiness. So we got to ask the question, looking carefully at what Moses did, in what, 
Uh, in what ways did Moses' actions show up a very serious and deep heart attitude? A heart attitude that didn't trust God. Now, you got to keep in mind, back in chapters 13 and 14, not trusting in God was the reason the Israelites as a whole rebelled against Him and couldn't enter into the land themselves. Not trusting in God is a serious thing when it reflects an attitude of the heart. So in what way does Moses' actions show that his heart of hearts didn't trust God? That's the first thing. And then the other thing we're looking for is in what ways did Moses' actions fail to uphold God's holiness, right? His holiness. If we can answer those questions, I think we're going to get to the bottom of it. Now, we're going to look at the details by firstly remembering the context. Remember, who are the Israelites, the people, or the assembly in Numbers 20? They are not the generation that came out of Egypt, remember? The generation that were under judgment from 13, chapters 13 and 14. But they are the new generation. Forty years have passed. This is the new generation that God has promised would enter into the land. They're the next generation. Now, uh, Numbers up to now really has been, a, if you guys imagine a graph, it's been spiraling downwards or going downwards. Now, Numbers 20, as I said, is a bit of the Infinity War chapter. It's pretty depressing. But from 20 onwards, it's actually going to start looking up. From here, Numbers will end up with, right at the end, them successfully going almost ready to conquer the land. So it's going to start going up. That's the context. New generation, it's looking up. But also, more importantly, look how this complaint story breaks the pattern. Remember I said in chapter 11, 1 to 3, there is a pattern set up for all the grumbling stories. The pattern is they complain, God judges, Moses intercedes, and then God's judgment is turned away. Notice this. The pattern isn't followed, is it? They complain, but it doesn't lead to God's judgment, does it? God makes no comments about their grumbling or complaining. He doesn't punish them for it. In fact, what it leads to is God providing graciously water for them. There's no punishment. There's not even anger that they're complaining And if you look at Exodus 17, you'll notice that it's the same pattern as Numbers 20. There's a complaint. In fact, Moses fears for his life, but no judgment, no anger, no punishment from God. Neither the first generation or the second generation were punished for their complaints. Which leads us to think more carefully about Moses. You see, God doesn't judge. God's not even angry here. But what about Moses? Let's look again at verse 7. Numbers 20, verse 7. The Lord said to Moses, Take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron, gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community, so that they and their livestock can drink. Verse 9, so Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock. And Moses said to them, listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff 
just to check you're awake. Water gushed out, and the water and the community and their livestock drank. You see, Moses is angry. Moses is furious. Moses acts and speaks in a way he feels the people deserve to be spoken to, which is very out of character for him. See, up to now, every time the people rebel and threaten Moses' leadership, even directly to him, he has seen that the rebellion isn't actually against him. He's not taking it personally. He's always seen that it's actually against God. And so every single time it's happened, he humbly and meekly trusts in God to set things right, to vindicate his leadership. But not this time, you see. Moses speaks as though their offense was against who? Him. And it's now up to he and Aaron to fix things up. And you notice his words. He says, must we bring you water out of this rock? Uh, that, that verb, bring out, is a very important verb. In verse 5, Israel say to Moses, why did you bring us up out of Egypt? Again, bring out. That's the verb, bring out. The verb that always is used when it's speaking about what God has done for his people. It's what God does. He brings them out of Egypt. He brings them water out of the rock. Not Moses. But you see, Moses, he now puts himself in the place of God. He's now the subject, the doer of the verb, the bringing out. Must we bring water out of the rock like we brought you out of Egypt? But it wasn't him who did it, right? And then there's the other thing here, the action of us striking the rock. It's not just a momentary lapse, or as I called it, muscle memory. Uh, it's not just out of frustration, you know, Moses punching a pillow, but a rock instead. Um, the word strike isn't, isn't just tap, and it's not just hit. It's actually the word used for pretty violent action. And he does it twice, by the way, in, um, in Hebrew, which is where the Old Testament is written in. Hebrew language uh, will uh, emphasize things using repetition. So if I want to say it's really dark, I will say it's dark darkness. If I want to say it's really holy, I'll say it's holy holiness. All right? So something that happens twice is not just an accident, but it's deliberate, it's emphatic, it's violent. And that verb strike, by the way, is most often used in the Bible as God's actions of judgment against his enemies. It's used in Exodus of what God did to Pharaoh and the Egyptians in the plagues. He struck them. Older translation will have the word smite. We should bring back that word. It's a good word, smite. Right? He smote them. Now, put it all together. What was going on in Moses' heart as his actions reveal it? It's anger, isn't it? But not just anger. Moses was angry in the way that he thought God should have been angry. That's the key. He was so angry, he wanted to step into God's role of meeting out, smiting judgment. Even though he knew from Exodus 17 that God wasn't going to judge his people for this kind of complaint. He didn't judge them then, he's not going to judge them now. And see, that's the problem. Moses, who is so much like us, so flawed like us. He got proud. He failed to let God be God. He wanted to take matters into his own hands. He put himself in God's place 
and in so doing, he failed to honor God as holy. That's the second thing. So let's think more about holiness. Uh, the word holy literally means to set apart or, or someone who's different or distinct. Now, God being holy means that God is different. He's distinct. He's not like us or anything else he's created. Now, we usually associate God's holiness with his purity and therefore his judgment, don't we? And that's right and good because that's often how the Bible speaks of his holiness. But it's not always the case here and elsewhere that God's holiness is just about his holiness against sin. Have a look at Exodus 34 verse 6. The word holiness isn't used, but you see what God is revealing himself as. He passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Do you see, God is also holy, that is, unlike us, distinct, set apart from us, in His mercy. In how patient He is. In how kind He is. Where Moses wanted to judge, where Moses might lose patience and I think we sympathize with Moses because we would too. Well, God is different, you see. God is holy. He's not like us. He's not like Moses. God is slow to anger. He's abounding in love and faithfulness. You see, what should Moses have done if he had trusted? And if he had upheld God's holiness, he would have trusted God to show mercy. He would have trusted God to be patient with these rebels. He would have trusted God to be God. And because he failed to trust God and instead put himself in the place of God, thinking that it was all up to him now to lead God's people, well, God's punishment sort of is fitting the crime, isn't it? He's going to take that leadership away. That's why Moses will fail to lead the people into the land. So let's think about this one. We actually sang it in the first hymn, I just noticed. Right? Holy, holy, holy. What's the next line? Merciful and mighty. Great hymn. Nice choice, team. God is holy because He is merciful. God is holy in His mercy, which means if you're a child of God, you do not uphold His holiness when we are angry and bitter and unforgiving. Do you see that? We don't reflect God. We're not like Him in that. When we are bitter and angry and unforgiving, when we condemn rather than love, when we exclude rather than embrace, when we are embittered rather than forgive, we fail to uphold God's holiness. The irony is some people think that by upholding God's holiness, it's actually that. You guys heard of Westboro Baptist in the U.S., famous for picketing um, soldiers' funerals, signs saying, you're going to hell, God hates you, not blessed, just cursed, and they're just some of the nicer signs. They really think that they're acting on behalf of God's holiness and they could not be more wrong, could they? They misread what God's stance is towards sinners. They think it's about God hating sinners. But it's not that. God is different to Westboro. He's different to us. Now, I'm not saying that God tolerates evil. 
No, we're not saying that at all. And that God's holiness isn't shown in purity and judgment. The day of judgment is coming, right? The Bible speaks of that. Jesus spoke of the day of judgment. And he, of all people, speaks of the reality of hell. But the key to ask ourselves now is, what is the time right now? What period in history are we in now? What is God's stance towards sinners and rebels now? Because that's the important question. I'm up to my final point. And to answer that, you know the famous uh, verse of the Bible, John 3, 16 and 17, don't you? For God so loved the world. What is his stance towards the world now? He so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And notice this next verse. Why did God send Jesus? He didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. What is God's stance towards sinful and rebellious people right now? Does Westboro Baptist have it right? Or did Jesus' own disciples have it right? Do you, do you remember in Luke chapter 9, um, they don't get welcomed by the Samaritans. So Jesus' disciples say, Lord, shall we call down fire from heaven and blast these guys out of the... And Jesus rebukes them. Or, or at Jesus' arrest, his chief disciple Simon Peter grabs a sword and cuts off the servant's ear. Is, is they, uh, do they have a right? Is that what Jesus came to do? No. God sent his son into the world not to condemn the world, but to save. When, when John 3.16 says God so loved the world, God's love is not saying God's love is so big because the world is so big and there's so many people in it. It's true, but that's not John's point. God's love is so big, not because the world is so big, but because the world is so bad. Because every time the word world is used in John, it's about the world that's turned its back on God. God so loved that world. That's why His love is so big, because the world is so bad. And yet God is what? Compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And so did Jesus take up sword or call down fire from heaven or curse and condemn? No. Quite the opposite, isn't it? Rather than strike others, Jesus allowed himself to be struck. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, don't turn to it, it says that Jesus is the rock from which we drink. I'm not really sure how that works, but that's a really interesting comparison. Jesus is the rock from which God's water, living water flows, the rock referred to in Numbers 20 and Exodus 17, the rock that miraculously gives water, is actually about Jesus somehow. But you put it all together, it means this, that on the cross, Jesus allowed himself to be struck. He didn't strike like Moses did. He gets struck and smitten, smote, smote whatever the word is. And he gets pierced in, in the Gospel of John with his spear. And you remember in the Gospel of John, when he's pierced with his spear, what flows out of his side? Blood and water. Jesus is the rock from which living water flows. And God tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 that now is the day of salvation. You want to know what time it is? Before Jesus comes back in judgment, now is not a day of condemnation. It's a day of salvation until he comes to judge 
God's stance towards a world in rebellion against Him is like the Father in Jesus' parable of the lost son. Do you know the Father who is out there waiting and He's watching and He's yearning and He's inviting and He's loving. He just wants His Son to come back to Him. He doesn't want anyone to perish. God is holy in His mercy. And maybe that's the good news you need to trust in for yourself today, whether you are a Christian or not. You need to rehear and retrust that news for yourself, that God isn't like anyone you know, no matter what you've done, no matter how far you've walked away from Him, no matter how many times you've sinned and rejected Him so far, now is still the day of salvation. It still is. And He wants you back. You don't have to be afraid to come to His arms because Jesus is your guarantee that God's face is always going to be turned towards you in love and not anger. Is this something you need to believe for yourself today? Or maybe this is good news you need to believe for someone else because you might have given up on them. You might have even stopped really praying for them expectantly You've distanced yourself. You've withdrawn a little. Maybe you've come to believe that they're too far gone. They could never turn back. Well, now is still the day of salvation. And God is unlike you and unlike me. He is still patient. He is still inviting. And He wants to use you and me. Not as instruments of anger and judgment like Moses wanted to be that day. No, no, no. He wants to use you and me as instruments of mercy and grace. So don't you give up on them. You hear? Keep praying. Keep loving. Keep speaking hope to them. Keep speaking the good news of Jesus to them. Keep inviting. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that as we had a new glimpse of your holy mercy and holy love that we would hold out to ourselves and the world this incredible good news that today is the day of salvation. Today we can turn to you. Today people can be saved. Oh, how we long that today people would be saved in our midst. And no matter what people have done, no matter how far we think they've gone, May we not give up on them because you have still set apart this day as a day of salvation. Amen. Um, in this, in this, uh, uh,我本来放在这里,但是,呃,这上面没有出来。那这首诗歌说什么呢?他说,世人都说神仙好。我有金钱,忘不了。但世人都知道,哎,神仙好。但是呢,金钱,哎呦,金钱更好。所以呢
我们今天要讲的这个这一段的经文，呃，跟《红楼梦》的这种精神是差不多的。他讲了一个人，他的名字叫巴兰，他也是这种精神的一种指示下面一种生活方式。那我们来一同祷告，我们求主来帮助我们。天父，我们把下面的时间交在你的手中，求你因你儿子我们主耶稣的缘故来赐福给我们，使我们听见你的话。奉主耶稣名字，阿门。我们已经讲到《民书记》第二十二章了，我们来回顾一下《民书记》。上一次我们讲过，以色列人他们在离开埃及以后的第二年，来到了一个地方叫加蒂斯巴尼亚，也就是这个左左边这个十二的这个地方，这个画了一个十二的这个地方，这个地方叫加蒂斯巴尼亚。但是让人遗憾的是，他们因为不相信神，不愿意进入迦南地。那神就在愤怒中间启示说，这一代人都要倒闭在旷野。从此，以色列人就开始了在旷野漂流的日子，一晃就是三十八年。这三十八年在圣经上基本上没有什么记载。到了后面一段经文讲说，在正月间，以色列全体会众到了寻的旷野，就住在加蒂斯，然后告诉我们，这这个民书记第二十章。他突然之间来了一句话，说：“正月间，以色列全体会众到了寻的旷野。”他没有告诉你第几年，但是如果说我们进行一些研究的话，我们知道这是第四十年发生的事情。也就是从刚才的第二年，神说你们不要进去了，然后他们在旷野漂流，这个时候已经到了第四十年了，中间的三十八年基本上就跳过了。他们到了那里以后呢，米利暗死在那里，也埋葬在那里，所以。以色列人，他们在第二年的时候，他们到了这个地方叫加蒂斯巴尼亚。经过了三十八年，他们漂流了以后，又回到了加蒂斯巴尼亚。那是不是圣经还在这里告诉我们，神的方式就是你在哪里跌倒，你就要在哪里爬起来呢？但是这个时候，因为是三十八年以后了，几乎已经是全新的一代了，因为上一代的那些人基本上都死了。接下来发生了几件事情：一月份，摩西的姐姐女先知米利暗死了；五月份，摩西的哥哥大祭司亚伦死了。然后神就吩咐他们说：“好，你们现在从西奈半岛的南端这个下面有一个地方，在十一这里，你们从这里绕行，然后再到约旦河的东岸。”所以，第一次神叫他们是从加蒂斯巴尼亚直接进去；第二次呢，神没有用这种方法，他们让神让他们。从这个西奈半岛这个南端的这个以寻加别这个地方绕行，绕过以东，绕过摩押，绕过亚门，所以这样一种到约旦河东，也就是我这里打个箭头，这里是说十五、十六的这个地方，从那个地方进入迦南地，也就是说，这个进入迦南地的这个方向路线是不同的。当时约旦河东岸有两个国王。一个是亚摩利人的国王西宏，一个是叫巴山王恶，以色列人已经把他们这两个国王打败了，夺得了他们的土地。这个时候，以色列人就安营在大概在十五、十六的这个地方，在这个摩亚平原，住在在这里，准备过约旦河。也就在这么一个地方，有一个箭头，红色的箭头，他们准备从这个地方过约旦河。下面这个橘红色这块区域，它是摩亚的这个国家，叫摩亚
，当时摩亚的国王名字叫巴勒，他呢看到了以色列人把这个亚摩利王西宏和巴沙王厄打败了，而且又驻扎在自己的边境线上，他非常紧张。那从我们的角度啊，我们相信我们能够理解这种紧张。你自己的国家在你的边境上驻扎了一支庞大的军队，你当然紧张。虽然神吩咐以色列人不可以攻击摩亚，巴勒他大概不晓得神有这样的吩咐。那就算他知道，他不相信神，所以他也不会觉得安全。所以他不安全是很正常一件事情。巴勒呢，他看到了以色列人打败自己邻居，而从前在他上面的有这么一块地方，叫亚摩利王西宏所占据的这块地方，这块地方原来是属于摩亚的。摩亚打不过这个这个亚摩利王西宏，被他夺得了他上面这块土地。现在摩亚的这个敌人又被以色列打败了，所以摩亚一想，那我估计没辙，打不过他们。这么强大的人驻扎在我的边境线上面，怎么办呢？他这里形容以色列人，他说这群人要吞吃我四周的一切，好像牛吞吃田间的草一样。那牛。这个形这个比喻很形象的，牛吃草，它只要嗷嗷嗷嗷就就把它吃完了，对不对？所以它是很形象的一个比喻。这个时候，巴兰想到要求助一个人，巴勒，对不起，巴勒想到要求助一个人，这个人叫巴兰。巴兰他住在哪里呢？那大家看到这个这个箭头，那这里这个红色箭头距离大概有多远呢？这右边的这个叫幼发拉底河，也就是相当于今天伊拉克的地方。他们现在是在以色列的边境线上面，从这两个地方大概至少也是几千里路。那么这么远的地方，现在巴兰住在这个这个幼发拉底河边上的这个毕夺，所以呢，巴勒要从摩押不远千里跑到这个幼发拉底河那边去请这个巴兰，那巴兰肯定是个名人。巴勒他为什么要求助巴兰呢？因为据说，据说巴兰祝福谁，谁就得祝福；咒诅谁，谁就被咒诅。显然，这个巴兰他具有一些超自然的能力，而且远近闻名。在当时这个社会里面，虽然他住的离摩押这个国王有一定的距离，但是很多人都知道这个人。那我们现在处在一个多元的世界里面。有些人只相信科学，啊，所以虽然科学不能证明有没有超自然力量，他们是极力的反对宗教信仰的。如果大家注意，在媒体里面有所谓的“新无神论者”，这些人是绝对的不相信有有有超自然力量的。但是跟这些人相反的，到另外一个极端呢，有些人是非常热衷于超自然的事情。所以，如果大家在悉尼，如果你关注一些的话。在很多地方有所谓的这个灵媒诊所，叫 psychic psychic clinic。那这些灵媒诊所，它是帮人算命的、看相的、风水的，所以有很多这种地方是有这些东西的。当然，我相信我们基督徒知道说，超自然的力量是有的。超自然力量，我们圣经说，上帝创造了宇宙，上帝创造了天使，又有一部分天使背叛了上帝，所以圣经告诉我们。超赞力量是有的。巴勒他就去请巴兰来咒诅以色列人。巴勒对他说：“有一个民族从埃及出来，遮满了全地，如今住在我的对面
现在，请你来替我咒诅这名，因为他们比我强盛，或者我能够击败他们，把他们从这地赶出去。巴勒想借用一点巴兰的超自然力量，如果巴兰咒诅以色列人，那巴勒想我就能够率领摩押的军队把他们打败。那有人说，那难道他的咒诅有那么神奇的力量吗？不仅仅是我们现在。用一种朴素的想法说，也许他有。圣经上也肯定这个人有这样超赞力量。摩西的接班人约书亚在晚年的时候，他他代表神说了这么一段话，这段神是神亲自说的。那时摩押王希波的儿子巴勒起来攻击以色列人，他派人把比尔的儿子巴兰招了来，咒诅你们。接下来神说：“我不肯听巴兰的话。”结果他反而一再祝福你们。这样我就救了你们脱离他的手。神说了，是我救了你们脱离了巴兰的手。言下之意就是说，如果说神真的让巴兰去咒诅了以色列人，肯定倒霉。也就是巴兰这个人，他确实具有超自然的力量。那我们也许也许大家知道，那刚信主的人可能不是很清楚。我们基督教教会里面有分传统教会和灵恩教会，至少两类。那我们这种教会是属于传统教会，灵恩教会非常强调话语的力量，他们非常强调话语力量。你讲话是很注，他是很注意的。他们的信徒大部分是不随便说话的。传统教会的信徒往往不大注意，比方说，传统教会的人可以说：“我真是一个倒霉的人”，或者说“我宁可下地狱”，或者对孩子说：“你真是没有出息”，然或者说：“啊，我怎么生了你这样一个笨蛋呢？”我们我们基督徒有些人可以不这样讲，不注意的讲话，这样对孩子说话。虽然我们可能不需要这样风声鹤唳、草木皆兵，但是我们确实应该学习灵恩的信徒不随便讲话的，因为话语是有权柄、是有力量的。巴兰他就回复巴勒差来的人，巴兰说：“今夜你们留在这里，我必照着耶和华吩咐我的话答复你们。”圣经学者到此就很纳闷了：巴兰他作为一个外族人，他是怎么知道耶和华的呢？巴兰的超支力量从哪里来呢？因为圣经告诉我们，以摩西在圣经记吩咐以色列人，不可以照着外邦人占卜、算命、行法术、邪术，所以圣经的教导很清楚。但是这个巴兰他所做的大概就是这一类的事情。但是他又似乎是知道耶和华的，所以让圣经学者困惑就在这里：到底巴兰是怎样知道耶和华的？圣经没有说，圣经没有给我们任何的信息，告诉我们说巴兰是怎样认识耶和华的。不知道，圣经只告诉我们巴兰知道耶和华。而且那一天晚上，神确实来到了巴兰那里，神就对到了巴兰那里说。与你在一起的这些人是谁呢？巴兰对神说：“是摩押王希波的儿子巴勒派到我这里来的人。”他们说：“现在请你来替我咒诅他们，或者我能够战胜他们，把他们赶走。”神对巴兰说：“你不可与他们同去，也不可咒诅那名，因为他们是蒙福的。”巴兰把巴勒请他去咒诅以色列人的目的告诉了神。巴勒请我去咒诅以色列人。
那神说：“你不可以与巴勒的使者一起去，你不可以咒诅以色列人，因为他们是蒙福的。以色列人是被祝福的，而且是被神祝福的。”巴兰就这样回复了巴勒的使者，巴勒使者回去了。这第一个回合结束了，巴勒派人去请巴兰，巴兰说：“神不让我去，所以你们回去吧。”第一个回合结束了。巴勒他听说巴兰不愿意来，他就派了更高级别的使者去请巴兰，而且对巴兰说：“你如果来，我可以给你更多的酬金。”巴勒使者对巴兰说：“巴勒这样说，请你不要推辞，我一定让你得到大尊荣。你说什么我都照办，只要你来为我咒诅这些人，你只要愿意来，你说什么我都照办。”巴兰就回答：“巴勒的臣仆说，就算巴勒把他给我满屋的金银，我也不能越过耶和华我的神的命令。所以他又说了，耶和华是我的神，我也不能越过耶和华我的神的命令。你们在这里住下，等我得知耶和华还要向我说什么。”巴兰的问题就出在这句：“等我得知耶和华还要向我说什么。”基督徒大部分的问题也出在这句话：“等我得知耶和华还要向我说什么。”这句话，用这边我再重复一遍：巴兰的问题就出在这句话：“等我得知耶和华还要向我说什么。”基督徒大部分的问题也出在这句：“等我得知耶和华还要向我说什么。”巴勒要什么？巴勒要巴兰去咒诅以色列人。如果巴兰不咒诅以色列人，巴勒会给他礼物吗？因为他的目的就是说，你来为我咒诅以色列人。如果你不咒诅的话，当然不会给你礼物啊。巴兰第一次从神那里得到的回答是什么？神对巴兰说：“以色列人是被祝福的，你不可以和巴勒的使者去，你不能咒诅以色列人。”所以在这里面，巴兰他有两个冲突的立场。巴勒呢是要巴兰去咒诅以色列人，神说以色列人是被祝福的，是不能被咒诅的。所以这是两个冲突的立场。为什么巴兰现在还想得知耶和华想说什么呢？还要说什么呢？难道耶和华能够出尔反尔吗？他希望耶和华出尔反尔，对不对？但是耶和华能够出尔反尔吗？因为他现在的问题就在于他有两个冲突的立场。巴兰他真的知道，巴勒想要他做什么吗？巴勒要他咒诅以色列人，所以我们这里有一个问题要问我们弟兄姐妹：我们知道自己每天在做什么吗？美国有一位很出名的牧师，名字叫 John Piper， 也也许大家听过这个人。John Piper 因为有一次他来悉尼讲道，有一个人啊、呃，他说我开车带你去悉尼逛一逛吧。然后说好，你准备现在带我去哪里？他说我带你去 Bondi Beach。他说这是很出名的一个海滩。他那个 Piper 牧师他说我不去。那人家说那为什么不去呢？海滩的诱惑太大了，我不去。海滩有什么？海滩有穿着比基尼的女郎，对不对？一个七十岁的老人，大家注意，这个这个 Piper 牧师他七十岁了，一个七十岁的老人觉得这是诱惑。做弟兄的大概都明白 ，Piper 牧师说的诱惑
因为做弟兄大概都明白，男人大部分男人的眼睛会被女人的身材吸引的。袒胸露背的女郎们会真的去勾引这位老头吗？他们不会，大概不会。但是这个时代呢，提倡说展现你的美貌，展现你的性感，这是潮流来的。这种潮流就是给男人们带来很多的诱惑、试探。所以派彭牧师知道说海滩会有诱惑，他不要去。如果大家浏览中文的网站，你很容易发现主流的中文网站和主流的英文网站有一个区别。主流的英文网站，比如像悉尼先驱晨报、纽约时报这些主流的，它基本上没有色情信息，至少在它的主页上面。但是像新浪、搜狐这样的中文网站，你进了首页，你就可以看见色情的信息。这些色情信息有什么目的？所以，当弟兄们，你们打开这个网页的时候，你有没有想过说，他给你这些信息有什么目的？再说一，比如说我们中间有非常英俊潇洒弟兄，在你的单位有一个很有一个单身女士欣赏你，常常找你聊聊天、喝喝咖啡，你怎么反应呢？单身，对不对？哎，你也结婚了，你知道这个单身女士她找你聊天、喝咖啡，她想要什么吗？他委屈寂寞，想要找一个人聊天，就这么简单。还是他觉得你这人不错，幽默，还挺帅的，体贴。你这个时候你是靠近呢，你还是远离呢？有句古话说：“苍蝇不叮无缝的蛋。”假设已经结婚的弟兄身边出现这位女士，弟兄们，你们怎么决定？你们是选择捕捉机会呢，还是快快逃呢？但是我们知道，我们不容易逃，腿是软的，跑不动，跑不动，对不对？弟兄们自己的心里的也是痒痒的嘛，郎有情妾有意，而且女追男隔张纸，是吧？现在他对我有意思，我能有多少抵抗力啊？但是不要忘记了，我们是生活在，不是生活在古时候啊，我们不能有三妻四妾的。你选择了这个，那你家里那一位呢？家里那位不要了。但是圣经怎么说呢？男人和女人成为一体，不可分开。所以，当我们心里痒痒的时候，我们至少得知道圣经的吩咐是什么。也许你问：圣经真的这么吩咐吗？其实你知道圣经的吩咐的，你心里很清楚，只是你不想遵守圣经的教导。巴兰他知道神的话，神说以色列是被祝福的，你不要去，你不可以咒他们。巴兰为什么还想听听耶和华的话呢？巴兰想要什么？巴兰想要金子和银子，最好是满屋子的金银。这就是他的问题，他想要的是金子和银子。彼得后书二章十五节说：“这巴兰贪爱不义的工匠。”巴兰，他想要钱，他因为想要钱，所以他想再听听神说什么。最好神说：“哎，你去吧。”神果然回答巴兰说：“这些人既来也请你，你就启程与他们同去。但是你只要遵行我吩咐你的事。”神说：“你去吧，但是你只能做我吩咐你的事情。”
问题是神不是第一次已经说过了，巴兰你不能去，你不可以去。后来神为什么改变主意呢？答案是因为巴兰想去，巴兰想着满屋的经营的。既然巴兰想去，并没有把神的话放在心里面，神就让他去了。你知道基督徒我们的危险就在这里，神可以让我们去的。好比有个弟兄，他想要另外一个女人的身体。好比我们打个比方。在这个时候，圣灵可能拦阻他一次两次，或者借着身边的用姐妹告诉他说：“这是不好的，你不能做。”但是他不听，在最后面，神可以让你去了，去的。所以，人的危险就在这里。当神说话的时候，神不会容许我们随便对待他的话。如果我们选择不顺服，神就让我们犯罪了。大家如果。知道新约圣经的话，新约圣经讲到圣徒和这个圣灵的关系的时候，只说圣灵的引导，从来不说圣灵的控制的。圣灵不控制，他只引导。控制是什么意思？就是说你一定要这样做，我控制你，你没有自由的。引导是你有自由的。当圣灵引导信徒的时候，如果信徒不愿意跟随，圣灵是不会来控制你的。所以神就对巴兰说：“你去吧，但是你只能做我吩咐你的事情。”巴兰他听到神允许他去，他估计那个晚上做梦都在想着金子和银子呢。哎，发财了，对不对？机会来了。所以第二天早晨他就骑着驴出发，骑着驴子出发了。圣经在这个时候告诉我们，神因为巴兰去就发怒了。神的愤怒再次告诉我们，神不喜悦巴兰去。以色列的人，以色列人是神的选民。巴兰他到底想要做什么？难道他要成为神的敌人吗？所以在有一个故事，这个小孩子都知道的。巴兰骑着一头驴在路上遇见了耶和华的使者，耶和华的使者手里拿着刀，拦阻巴兰。当时巴兰他自己还没有看见耶和华的使者，因为。神是属灵的，你肉体看不见他，但是呢，耶和华的使者把那头驴的眼睛打开了，所以驴看见了耶和华使者，他看到了以后，看到他手里的刀，他就害怕，往这个边上的这个篱笆边上插过去，然后把这个巴兰的腿弄伤了。巴兰很生气，打那头驴，神就让驴开口和巴兰对话。后来呢，神又开了巴兰的眼睛，让他看见耶和华的使者。耶和华使者对巴兰说：“是我来抵挡你，因为你的路在我面前邪僻，意思是你的道路在我面前不正直。”耶和华使者又对他说：“如果驴没有从我面前转开，我早已把你杀了，留他活着。如果这头驴没有从我面前转开的话，我就把你杀了，留他活着。”巴兰说：“我有罪了。”我不知道是你站在路上阻挡我。现在你若是不喜欢我去，我就回去。他的问题还在这里。你如果不喜欢我去，我就回去。他真的想回去吗？如果他真的想回去，他还需要问这个问题吗？如果他真的想知道要回去的话，他应该赶紧调转这个驴的头，对不对？但是他还在问：如果你真的要我回去的话，我就回去吧。耶瓦的使者对巴兰说：“你和这些使者去吧，但是你只能说我吩咐你的话。”神还是让他去，而且吩咐他去。
巴勒想让巴兰咒诅以色列人。那巴兰他去了以后，他就可以因为为了这些金钱，他随自己意思咒诅吗？他还是不能，因为神说了，你只能说我吩咐你的话。后来圣经告诉我们，巴兰到了摩押王巴勒那里以后，三次要咒诅以色列人，但是都没有成功，因为神只让他祝福以色列人。下星期我们会接着讲巴兰的这几次想要咒诅以色列的事，这个这个尝试。巴兰他没有满足摩押王巴勒的要求，也就是说，摩押王巴勒叫他去咒诅，而且把他请来了。请来了以后，几次三番，巴兰仍然没有咒诅以色列人，而且而且他是祝福了他们。巴兰那怎么怎么能够得到巴勒的馈赠呢？因为他来的目的，他就是为了这个金钱来的。现在怎么办呢？巴兰给摩押王巴勒出了一个非常恶毒的主意，非常恶毒的主意。他说：“你呢，去找许多年轻貌美的女子，你去找一些女女女女子来，在以色列营地的周围给摩押的神献祭。你去找很多的女子，然后呢，在营地的周围给。”你们摩押人的神献祭，同时让这些女孩子用身体去诱惑以色列人，和你们这些摩押女子一起献祭。所以他想了一个非常高明的办法。以色列人果然是挡不住这些年轻貌美的女子的诱惑，就参加了摩押人的献祭活动。圣经告诉我们。耶和华的怒气发作，用瘟疫击杀了二万四千以色列人。所以，他是一个很简单的做法，就是派一些女女子去献祭，然后呢，他们来跟你们一起献祭。结果神发怒了，就把他们击杀了，一次就是两万四千人。巴兰他见自己他不能咒诅以色列人，拿不到酬金，他就想了这么一个办法。大概他的他的逻辑是这样。巴勒王，你请我咒诅以色列人，那你的你你叫我咒诅他们，只是希望说减少以色列人的战斗力，这样你就可以打败他们，对不对？好，那我现在不用咒诅他们，也可以减少他们的战斗力的，啊，我们有各种各样的方法嘛，对不对？你派一些女子去诱惑他们，让以色列人给摩押的神献祭，这样呢，神就会对他们以色列人发怒。把他们消灭了，这样以色列的这个战斗力不也照样在降低了吗？所以殊途同归，我也达到目的了。最后面巴兰有没有拿到这个这个赏金？不知道，圣经没有说。但是在我们这里，这个故事要给我们一个很深的一个一个警示。我们要知要想问一个问题：巴兰他知道什么？巴兰他知道做事情需要请示神，他自己说什么需要神的许可，他也知道神的大能，他看见耶和华的使者，他也会惧怕，他甚至在他最后这个计谋，其实他也知道神的圣洁。为什么他给巴勒建议这么一个恶毒的主意呢？因为他知道神的圣洁，所以呢，你如果这么做的话，神一定会生气的。所以。巴勒他对神是有一点知道的，但是有一个问题是，巴兰他没有真正的认识神，他没有把敬畏神和服侍神当做最重要的事情
他没有把这个敬畏神和服侍神当做最重要的事情。神对巴兰说：“以色列人是被祝福的，你不能咒诅。”但是他还是想要去摩押。他见了咒诅没有成功，他就想出了这么一个恶毒的计谋，也表明了他是铁着心想要与神对着干。巴兰心里没有对神的敬畏，这是他的问题。他知道什么？他知道，巴兰不是摩押人，所以圣经告诉我们，他是住在幼发拉底河的这个毕夺这么一个地方，所以他不是摩押人，他不是出于爱国。如果说他是一个摩押人，也许他出于爱国去咒诅以色列人。他从毕夺来到摩押，只有一个目的，就是为了金子和银子。人在世界上主要的诱惑。也许种类不多，主要的诱惑也许种类不多，金钱、美色、功名、权力，也许就这么几种。但是就这么几种，就能够让我们心灵的眼睛昏暗无光。也许我们诧异，巴兰他怎么会为了金钱而不愿意听神的话呢？其实，在我们身边这样的事情，有的是。有一个女孩子。啊，他来某个教会一段时间以后呢，他也呃参加了很多的呃参加了小组啊，也学习了很关于圣经的真理，他也知道一些福音，大概对福音还是蛮清楚的，就是说就是说你跟他对话的时候，你觉得说他其实好像很懂的。他找了一个男朋友，然后说有一有一有一天他说要出去旅行几天，当然跟这个男孩子了，对不对？然后师母就呃对他说：“你们不可以单独出去的，诱惑太大了。一个男孩子一个女孩单独出去旅行，这个诱惑太大了。”这个女孩子不听，听他说：“没关系的，我们没关系的。”但回来以后呢，就同居了，而且同居了以后就再也不来教会了。也就在他去以前的那些日子里面，他好像对福音好像很了解了已经。有些年轻人说：“我要先赚钱，我我赚了钱以后，我在世界上有一定的名声地位，然后呢，我再来读神学、做牧师。最后面连人影都不见了。所以，金钱、美色、功名、权力，弟兄姐妹，这些都是对我们的试探。对我来说，每一样对我都有吸引力。”没有一样对我没有吸引力，每一样对我都有吸引力，所以每一样都让我害怕。我想，如果说我一生都害怕这些诱惑，我应该能够平平安安的到主耶稣那里去。也就是我知道这些东西都很有诱惑力，我很害怕，我一生都害怕。我时时刻刻知道说我要保持警惕，那我大概知道说我一我走过人生路，然后我能够平平安到主耶稣那里去。如果有一天我没有对这些东西的惧怕了，我就完了。神让巴兰去了摩亚，神让巴兰给巴勒出了一个恶毒的计谋。神没有把罪恶扼杀在萌芽的状态。亲爱的弟兄姐妹，神没有把罪恶扼杀在萌芽的状态。神不做这样的事情，这也是我们的危险。你以为说我现在危险了，神？最好不要让我有这样的试探，不，神把这个试探放在你的面前，而且神不把罪恶扼杀在萌芽状态
，如果我们的神把罪恶扼杀在萌芽状态的话，亚当和夏娃都没有机会吃善恶之事的果子了，对不对？亚当和夏娃这个树放在他们面前，他们要吃的时候，神没有把它拿走，因为神不把罪恶扼杀在萌芽状态，神给我们自由。让我们选择来跟随他，所以神给我们自由，你要自己选择的。作为神的儿女，所以在这个时候，我们从这个巴兰的故事里面，我们就要知道说，我们不能够只在头脑里面知道神。如果你知道一些神的事情，如果你知道说神是这样一位神，你大概哎，我大概教会里所说的教义我都懂了。如果你只是停留在你的头脑里面有一些知识，你的心里面跟他没有什么关系，你的心里面其实并不爱他，那你是很危险的。因为只有当我们从心里面爱他，从心里面来认识他，在这个时候你才会真正的去侍奉他。你的头脑的知识不会转化成你真正的生命的。那对于我们弟兄姐妹来说，刚才。王丽姊妹做见证的时候，她有两次提到说，她要好好读神的话语。对的，神的话，神要我们知道的都记载在圣经里面。如果我们想侍奉神，就要好好的读神的话。你要，而且你要，你要读了以后，你要把它放在你的心里面。你要知道了神的话，你知道了神的话，你不要到时候诱惑来了以后，你说让我等等看。看夜华还要对我说什么？亲爱的弟兄姐妹，神没有对你再说话的机会。神告诉你这条路你可以走，你才可以走。神如果对你说你不能走，你不要给自己说，让我等一等看，看夜华还要对我说什么。神没有别的话跟你说，你遵行，只有这条路。如果说你敢于跨出去抵挡神，那后果自负。巴兰最后面的结局是什么？最后面，神就派了以色列人去攻打那些诱惑他们的这些人。在他们去攻打这些人的时候，巴兰也在那边。以色列人顺便就用刀把他给杀了。圣经为什么要告诉我们，他们也杀了巴兰呢？因为这个人他为了金钱，他敢抵挡神。所以，神就用以色列人的刀执行了他的审判。所以，对于我们基督徒来说，我们知道说，侍奉神，我们需要小心我们的诱惑、金钱、功名、权力、美色。让我们祷告，天父，我们感谢你，赞美你，谢谢你对我们所说的话。我们祈求你使我们有一颗敬畏你的心。奉主耶稣名字，阿门。谢谢费传道的正道啊，真是对我们很好的提醒啊！现在啊，我们听了神的话，我们要用啊啊感恩的心啊来回应神的话，我们要收自由奉献。那么奉献是基督徒的本分，是权利也是义务。如果我们在这中间，有的还不是基督徒，不明白奉献的意义，或者你只是访客
那么，请你不要勉强，让奉献再传过去好。我们收奉献的时候啊，唱《生命圣诗》三百一十五首，《只是你路》。三节，当有一句进口，只是你路；当有黑云蔽空，只是你路。无论风雨阴晴，无论痛苦有情，是我前途光明。只是你路。来，我们一起来祷告。父神上帝，求你悦纳弟兄姐妹感恩所做的自由的奉献，求你赐福给你的教会，把得救的人数天天的加给我们。求你保守弟兄姐妹身心灵都能够健壮，软弱的你来加能力，忧伤的你来安慰他们，有难处的你来解脱。有在受罪捆绑的，求你使他们转回，而且来赦免他们。主啊，我们求世人都尊你的名为圣，愿你的国降临，愿你的旨意行在地上，如同行在天上。听我们的祷告，乃是奉主耶稣基督的名，阿门。好，我们现在再一次的欢迎大家来到西南区基督教会，一起来敬拜神。我们中间有没有第一次来的？可不可以麻烦你举一下手，好让我们认识你？没有，都是老朋友。等一下散会后。在富堂有早茶招待，希望大家能够留步。天气寒冷，大家一起喝杯热茶，啊，大家聊聊。好，现在请看我们呃，市区单的第三页，呃，教会的消息报告。